This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be rejoining our journey through the scriptures. In the fall of 2017, (laughs) we started in Genesis, church-wide journey. Everybody comes to the doors on a Sunday morning, is studying the same story, studying the same passage of scripture from two years of age on up. Well, in our journey through the scriptures, we've been in the middle of the life of Solomon. Solomon was a prolific writer of wisdom literature. And wisdom literature, here's, this is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is all about helping us live with godly competency in the gray areas of life. You want to know what wisdom literature is about? That's what it's about. It's all about helping us live with godly competency in the gray areas of life. In other words, when there is no verse you can open up and point to that tells you what to do, that's wisdom. That's wisdom literature. And so we are... Um, in the middle of looking at some wisdom literature today. And as I was reflecting on, on you know, where do you find wisdom for life, I, I was thinking, where do other people do that? Where do other people out there find wisdom for living daily life? And it dawned on me, Pinterest. <laughs> so I went there, and I searched wisdom for living, advice on how to live. Okay, here's what I found. An apple a day keeps anyone away if thrown hard enough. I'm not making this up. It's on the page. You search advice for living. This is what you find on Pinterest. When life gives you lemons, squeeze them in people's eyes. Of course, they had, there's lots of Oscar Wilde in there. <laughs> There's lots of Oscar Wilde in there. Here's what Oscar said in the, under the search, Pinterest, wisdom for living, always borrow money from a pessimist. He won't expect it back. <laughs> Some of you are looking the room right now. Just again in the room. Some, here's another one from Oscar. Some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. Taking a little while to sink in. I, uh, um, to, this is an anonymous quote. I couldn't find, there was no uh, citation here. To err is human. To blame it on somebody else shows man- management potential. Okay. And the last one, and this was my favorite, it says, before you marry a person, before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they truly are. That's true. Well, Ecclesiastes offers us much richer wisdom for making the most of life, but getting this out of Ecclesiastes is not easy because Ecclesiastes, while it's a book that you can read in a single sitting, after you finish reading the book, you'll find yourself scratching your head, maybe banging it against the wall. And it's written that way purposefully because the topic it takes up is how life itself often leaves us scratching our heads and banging our heads against the wall. 
It's perfectly tailored to it. The, the, the literary genre, the engagement with the text, gives you the effect that life does. It's part of its brilliance. The prevalent theme of this book is how life can be complex, messy, sometimes brutal, but there is a straightforward way to look at the mess. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four wisdom nuggets to make the most of life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, four wisdom nuggets to make the most of life. Here they are. Stop pretending. Don't fall for gimmicks. Do your bucket list and fear God. Okay? Making the most of life, four nuggets of wisdom to make the most of life. Stop pretending. Don't fall for gimmicks. Do your bucket list and fear God. First, stop pretending. During the, the nine incredibly short years that I've been a parent, uh, I've, I've watched my kids time and again create imaginary worlds that are visible only to them. They may be playing with a cardboard box, but to them it's been crafted into a kingdom where king and villain engage in this perpetual struggle that's ended only by the call to wash up for dinner. This spectacular ability to create entire worlds with their imaginations sometimes gets confusing when they attempt to adjust to the real world. You know, in the pretend world, uh, making any food your heart desires and eating it for free is just how it works. But in the real world, you can't just sit at the dinner table and expect dad and mom to fetch you whatever food your imagination craves at the moment. Right? My kids have created some imaginative worlds, but they're not real. Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts that helps us live in the real world because every one of us naturally drifts towards a pretend one. Ecclesiastes is there to wake us up and to move us into the real world. The book begins with shock tactics. Look at this verse, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a way to start a book. What a way to start a book. Other translations use the word meaningless. <clears throat> Everything is meaningless, meaningless. And our tendency at this point is to read this like a freshman philosophy student who comes home from, uh, from school at Christmas break and announces to his family that the universe as we know it is pointless and life has no meaning. That's the way we're, we tend to read that. But as we'll discover, that's not the preacher's perspective. That's not the author's perspective. In other places in the Old Testament, the word for vanity is translated variously. So here, here's one example of this, Psalm 144, verse 4. Man is like a breath. There's the word for vanity. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Another place where the same word is used is Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. The word for fleeting there is the same word as vanity. So part of the preacher's shock tactic is to remind us that life is short. It's fleeting. It's a breath. It's a mist. Now, when I say life is short, by the way, he's not just commenting on the duration of time that exists between your birth and your death. That's not, that's not even half of what he's talking about. He's saying every aspect to life is ephemeral. Every aspect to life is fleeting. Every aspect to life is a mist. 
Your career is a mist. The home you live in is a mist. The health you now enjoy is a mist. Every aspect to life is fleeting. Every aspect to it. You, you, might, you might pour your whole life into something and it might succeed or it might fail. You might land a dream job tomorrow only to see the business go belly up the next month. How much control do you really have over your future? Where will you be in five years' time? Where will you be in 10 years' time? We don't know. It's short. It's fleeting. Not too terribly long ago, our, our family spent some time together on a beach. And what do you do on a beach? You, you make sandcastles, right? So we, did, we made sandcastles. But it was only a couple hours' time after that before the tide reduced those sandcastles to a patch of ordinary beach. Yeah, we build sandcastles for a short time, but they are subject to forces beyond our control. That's the preacher's reality check. That's the preacher's reality check. Now, his end game, listen, his end game is not going to be for us to throw up our hands and say, why bother with anything then? That's not his end game. No. The argument is the wise person accepts that life is short and elusive. The wise person accepts, accepts that we are subject to forces beyond our control. The wise person still builds sandcastles and enjoys doing so. But they don't get flustered when the tide reduces them to ordinary beach. I think we would find that we get more out of life, that we enjoy it more, if we realize not everything can be fixed. Part of the angst that we end up creating for ourselves is looking at every aspect of our lives, finding all the problems, and thinking they can all be solved. Not everything is a problem that can be solved. Some things in life, folks, listen, some things in life must be suffered and endured. Some things in life must be suffered and and endured. Some things in life do not have a solution. Wisdom is not about mastering the world. Getting the most out of life isn't about solving every problem. You know what it's about? You know what wisdom's about? Enjoying building sandcastles, even though in a moment's time the tide will reduce them to ordinary beach. So here's a homework assignment for you. Next time you blow out a candle, watch the smoke. Next time you blow out a candle, watch the smoke. Make note of how long that puff of smoke lasts. And think to yourself, every aspect of my life is like that. Second, don't fall for gimmicks. Now in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher journeys on a quest to find satisfaction and meaning in life. He pursues this by giving himself to wisdom, comedy, pleasure, alcohol, projects, possessions. And as he did this, he held happiness in his hands. And then he felt it slip through his fingers. And after all of this was over, after all of these quests were done, he concludes by saying all is vanity and a striving after wind. You know, just about everything we do on a daily basis is done to make ourselves happy. Do you realize that? 
We stay in the shower a little bit longer when we hear the kids fighting downstairs. We feed ourselves. We dress ourselves in clothes we likely chose because of the way they made us feel as we beheld them for the first time. All of our varied pursuits are in the name of finding happiness, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness, all of them. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. From 1966 to 1997, more than 30 years, three decades, there ran a series of TV commercials in the UK for Hamlet cigars. Uh, They all follow the basic same plot line. There was some poor human being trying to achieve something that went horribly wrong every time. No matter how how hard they tried, they always would end up failing. And so the humor uh, of the ads lies in, in watching this person fall on his or her face again and again and again until they kind of resign themselves to failure. They simply lit up the cigar, cue the tagline, happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. 31 years, same story told. Is it? Well, the preacher engages in a number of pursuits one of which is wisdom. He attends Jerusalem University. He learns from every professor. He passes all the exams. The halls of his study are lined with his degrees. But what does he find? What does he discover? His tears are the same as the person working on the street who never went to school. The preacher leaves the university, heads down the street to the comedy club hits up the expensive wine bars that line the street, sits outside in the sun, savoring glass after glass. The preacher then turns the corner and becomes industrious. Maybe work, management, projects, career, getting things done. Maybe this is where happiness is found. Next comes money, power, and sex. The preacher's a man of influence. He undoubtedly is an A-list celebrity, secure at the top of the Forbes annual billionaires list. Everything he wants, he has immediately. But what he discovered is that all of this is a chasing after the wind. He discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corner lurks the darkness of diminishing returns. Happiness is a vanishing vapor. Making the most of life requires you to understand that eventually all your bubbles burst. All of them. One of my favorite movies growing up was the movie Chariots of Fire, which captures some of the events of the uh, British track team leading up to the 8th Olympiad. One of the main characters of the story is uh, a man named Harold Abrahams. He's obsessed with winning. It drives him, so much so that he hires a professional trainer, which at that time was frowned upon. Harold is determined to win the gold medal, and he's obsessed with doing so. There's, in a, there's a scene in the movie right before the finals of the 100-meter dash 
where Harold is in the training room with his trainer getting ready and his friend and his teammate Aubrey is there with him and Harold becomes reflective. This is what he says. He says, you Aubrey are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Remember the scene? Harold goes out there and what happens? He wins. He wins the gold medal. His teammates are out on the track celebrating with him. But in one of the next scenes, where is he? He's in the bar, a bit inebriated, staring off into the distance as if to say, is this all there is? See, the preacher would say Harold's problem wasn't in his effort to win or in the actual winning. The problem was what he was asking the winning to do for him. See, career success cannot provide you with ultimate satisfaction. Romance, money, hobbies, you name it, it cannot provide you with ultimate meaning in life. Don't fall for gimmicks. You want to make the most of life? Don't fall for gimmicks. Third, do your bucket list. There is something to be said for enjoying life. While education, comedy, work may not offer ultimate happiness, it doesn't mean we avoid these things. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 24, here's what we read. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. This idea in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, this idea repeatedly comes up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This idea is, is, is repeated throughout the book. Now, upon first blush, again, you could, you could look at it and say, well, maybe the, peer, the preacher is, is, is touting this nihilistic creed, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that's a sloppy reading of it. That's not his take on it. Now, in reality, some people do say, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's all there is. (laughs) You know some people like that. This is how they live life. Eat, drink, and be merry, because because that's all there is. The preacher says something slightly different. The preacher says, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's what there is. See, the preacher acknowledges throughout that God has given us good gifts to enjoy. And they are their own reward. I haven't come out and said it this baldly, but I believe the major purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to get us to think about death. Overarching purpose is to get us to think about death. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's the point of, 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 of wisdom literature, right? To give you wisdom, teach us to number our days. Let us think about our death. Now, the sum total of all the experiments that he's done, of all that the preacher witnesses, of all that he ponders, is to get us to come face to face with our mortality. And then, (laughs) 
to reorder our life according to the shared experience of the death that awaits us all. In other words, Ecclesiastes helps us live life backwards. So think about it together with me. When we learn to accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that can help stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. Think about the line of thought. You can throw your best time and your best energy, your expectations into pursuing that dream job. But if you keep your death in view, there will be a limit to that job's ability to absorb your time, energy, and expectations. You may pursue and achieve your, achieve your dream job, but guess what? You're going to die someday. You may pursue and achieve your dream home, but you're going to die someday. You may pursue and achieve your dream family, but you and they are going to die someday. See, all too often, I think we use God's good gifts as a means of chasing after other things. But death reorients us. It can cause us to enjoy God's good gifts for what they are in themselves. And instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end, we take time to live inside the gifts themselves and see them as a gift from the hand of God. Let me give you some examples of this. Think about work for a minute. Probably a lot of people approach work as a means of earning money, maybe even gaining wealth and success. Work is the means to that end. But the preacher says, no, your work is itself a gift simply to enjoy regardless of whether or not it makes you rich. Think about food and drink. We use, we, we use food and drink to fill our bellies and to remove the discomfort of hunger so that we can get on with the rest of life, Right? You've got work to do. Okay, I've got to eat so I can keep going, right? It's a means to an end. But the preacher says, no, no, slow down. Have some friends around. Cook or order some delicious food. Savor the flavors. Live inside the gifts. Don't just look at them as a means to an end. David Gibson, in his fantastic little book on Ecclesiastes, writes this. He says, a life fully lived is a life receiving the reward of today as a gift that you don't deserve and one that God has given you to enjoy. One day, it won't be possible. Death is coming. So do your bucket list. Not your to-do list. We all have to-do lists. Feed the dog, go to the bank, do the shopping, phone the plumber, but Ecclesiastes is a book that urges us to do our bucket list. Dr. Seau, in his exhaustive commentary on Ecclesiastes, contends that enjoyment of God's gifts is not just something permitted, but commanded. Think about that. Enjoyment of God's gifts is not just something, oh yeah, you're permitted to do that. No, we want you to do that. God wants you to do that. Enjoying God's good gifts isn't just an opportunity, it's a divine imperative. 
Now, in human experience, I think you know this already. You already know this to be true. (laughs) Failure to enjoy a gift is an offense, not just an oversight. Failure to enjoy a gift is an offense. It's not just an oversight. We just came off of Christmas where I'm sure gifts were given. Uh, If you happen to be a parent who gave a gift to your child, probably you don't want to see that thing collect dust. Right? Right? No parent is glad that Buzz Lightyear sits pristinely in the box on the shelf rather than lovingly bashed and bumped in daily adventures. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of Israel, the curses of the covenant will befall them. Look at this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. God wanted them to find joy in the abundance of all things that he had provided for them. And if they don't, the curses of the covenant will befall them. See, Christian living collapses when it doesn't delight in the bounty that God gives. I wish I could unpack this further. Um, I was a guest preacher here several years ago, and I unpacked this idea in a sermon that some of you remember today, this day. The title was Golf Books and Thai Curry. Golf Books and Thai Curry. Um, I've been asked about that. Um, so I will re-preach that at some point in the future, but it's all about that. It's all about living inside the gifts that God's given us. It's all about the command, the imperative to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. For now, I've got an assignment for you. Create a bucket list. Go create a bucket list. Uh, Make plans to execute your bucket list. Okay? But as you do, as you do, heed the preacher's counsel. On the one hand, happiness will not be found in doing your bucket list. Ultimate meaning in life will not be found in doing your bucket list. Okay? Don't expect too much of it. On the other hand, your bucket list will likely contain innumerable gifts from God that he doesn't want to see collect dust on the shelf. Live inside those gifts and thank God for them. Last thing we need to remember in order to make the most of life is to fear God. Here's how the book, Ecclesiastes, concludes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fearing God, keeping His commands, remembering there's a judgment day in all of our futures will enable us to live inside reality rather than pretend world. It will make us suspicious of gimmicks that promise everlasting happiness. And it will allow us to enjoy and live inside the good gifts of God without asking too much of them. Fearing God, keeping His commandments, puts everything else in perspective. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? I'll finish with this. I was a music major in college, and I studied classical guitar. How does one do a final exam on an instrument? They're called juries. 
juries. They're called juries. I kid you not. A jury was the final exam for musicians and vocalists in the music department. It was held during the weeks of final exams. Inside the jury room, there was the jury. Anywhere from four to seven of the most senior faculty in the music department, along with your instructor. They would sit behind a table with numerous papers scattered in front of them, waiting to make their indelible marks of judgment on the musician's performance. Jury week was the worst week of the year. (laughs) You feel my pain, thank you. Writing answers to a final exam on a sheet of paper in a classroom with 20 to 200 other students was a cakewalk compared to the daunting gauntlet of the jury room. I could have three to five other final exams in the week to take. The only thing I was thinking about was my jury. I feared it. And as a result, I was unable to do anything else without thinking about it. I could be studying for a microeconomics final exam, and I'd be thinking about my jury. This is what it means to fear. To fear doesn't mean to cower in the corner, wondering if God is going to come and get you. To fear the Lord means doing everything with reference to Him. To fear the Lord is to do all things with Him in your field of vision. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And this is the nugget of wisdom that maintains all the others. Listen, when God is perpetually in your field of vision, when you do everything with reference to Him, you will not freak out when the tide reduces your sandcastle to ordinary beach. You will not fall for gimmicks that promise ultimate happiness through career, through romance, through education, through money. And when you live with God in your field of vision, when you do everything with reference to Him, you will truly be able to live inside and enjoy the good gifts that God has graciously and generously provided you. Amen? Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, life can be mystifying. It can frustrate us. It thwarts our plans. It thwarts our desires. But as the coming year inevitably holds these things in store for us, help us to remember you control the tide that washes away our sandcastles. You're the one who satisfies our thirst and hunger. You are the one who provides us with lasting satisfaction. You are the giver of good gifts to be enjoyed. Help us to live with Godwardness in 2019. Help us to do everything with you in our field of vision. Help us to do everything with reference to you. We pray these things, we ask these things because we want your church to emanate your glory. We want the world to see there is something bigger than what their eyes and ears take in daily. So 
We pray these things in Christ's name alone. Amen.